0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Jill Zender, and I am a nurse practitioner at Texas Children's in the cardiac ICU. I'm also a member of the podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Roxanne Kirsch from Sick Kids in Toronto. Um, and we'll be talking about maximizing end-of-life care. She was a speaker and a session moderator at the uh, Joint Pediatric Critical Care International Meeting in London. This meeting was a joint endeavor of PCICS, PICS, the Pediatric Intensive Care Society of the UK, and the European Conference on Pediatric and Neonatal Cardiac Intensive Care. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, so I know that you do a lot of work and have a lot of interest in end-of-life care. Um, what started your interest? How did you get involved in
1: that? Oh, that's a, a good question. Um, it probably stemmed largely as I explored uh Pick you fellowship. I probably became more and more interested in end of life care, although I had been contemplating doing ethics as part of my academic career from the time that I was in a pediatric residency position, um, realizing that it was actually critical care that I wanted to for my clinical focus. Um, as I progressed through critical care, I kind of held um, in, in the background the further training that I would want to pursue about ethics and understanding how that could become part of my career. Then um, well, I sort of actually ended up approaching that more from an innovation perspective and ethical considerations and innovation, which fits really well with pediatric cardiology also, um, I found that what was needed, what was in front of me, was the clinical aspects of end-of-life care and withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy and the progression of diseases and life-limiting illnesses and how we address those topics with families in an ICU setting and even outside of it. And so this sort of really became a practical need for um, elevating my skill sets and just spending a lot of time thinking about the topic and uh, um, examining it.
0: What was the uh, most beneficial part of the session on maximizing end-of-life care?
1: Well, I think my audience might all have come away with something slightly different. I um, really liked a few focuses. One was that we were truly multidisciplinary. So we had nurse practitioners, and we had uh, psychologists and PhD people doing work on anthropology, and we had physicians and ethicists all in the same panel. So we had a truly sort of multidisciplinary focus, which I think was helpful in understanding the various aspects that come into um, doing uh, appropriate high quality end of life care. Um, we really tried to work on how you would maximize this. So we anticipated our teams are going to have a lot of skill sets in this area and they're going to want to focus more on the parts of it that get a bit tricky. So how can we deal with the times that it's not going as smoothly as we think, or it's not as straightforward as we think. Um, I feel like we covered a reasonable range of what those tricky bits might be and not just focused on if there's conflict. We address that head on, but we didn't just focus on that. And I think that for me, that was a bit of a highlight to cover the spectrum.
0: How, how do you suggest you Address the conflict. I think it can be very difficult. To well, I
1: think that, um, I mean, the conflict always comes up as huge. Um, there's a few different ways. The setup is probably the biggest piece of how you wound up in conflict, anyways. So, a good portion of that is understanding all the things that we say when we don't think about what we actually are implying or what we mean by that. Um, a good portion of my talk was in one of those aspects. It's not going to be the only contributor, but the euphemism of do everything um, drives me crazy. It was a bit of a personal soapbox, so I just got to go up on an international stage and rant about something that really drives me crazy. But it's a bit of that nonspecific euphemisms from e- coming from a very scientific-oriented, very meticulous evidence-based crowd. It seems ridiculous to me that we all just sit in a room and go, well, the family wants everything so let's just do everything. And we don't actually define what that means. Um, so I think that one of the uh, aspects of setting up how we wind up in conflict later is that if we didn't set up what we could do or what we should do or why that made sense or how that made sense or what values or goals that we're, um, drawing from to come up with those plans, then it seems like a bit of a shock when you're suddenly like, and it's done. So, um, a lot in the setup and it's not just the do everything. It's also the, how have you explained the disease process? How have you checked in? Have you actually spent the time unpacking all the emotions and uh, different concepts that come into, um, that conversation and probably it's multiple conversations, And then for the conflict itself, I think some conflicts will be intractable. There's a whole bunch of conflicts that we could avoid getting into if we were more careful about the things that we say. So I think communications training is really important and critical. Not avoiding difficult conversations, because the longer you put them off, the more troublesome they can become. Um, Also training more than just one person, so it does not have to be, it's not just the lead intensivist that sits down to have the very hard information to share, breaking bad news meeting, but it's also what are all the things that the bedside nurses have said prior to that, the nurse practitioners that have come through, the care providers that have cared for the family in advance, how are we liaising with these people, how are we building on those conversations the actual conflicts have become intractable. We had uh, Myra Blue Blonde uh, Langner, um, who is uh, in the uh, palliative care field um, and has done uh, some work on mediation. And so she's got a, a mediation consultant company that you can consult in and just spoke to the benefits of mediation. Um, I think that a lot of times, and as all the speakers would have pointed out, pediatrics is pretty good at mediating a lot of problems themselves, because we do tend to be better communicators in the fact that we've spent our entire careers talking to not just our patients, often our patients can't talk back to us, but our families, um, and having to be held to this high level of communication at baseline. Um, But you can't always mediate all your own conflicts. And then she really went through what the principles of mediation might be. Um, I myself have done an additional certificate during my master's of bioethics uh, training that was on mediation, and mediation ends up being not just about ethical issues, but also a lot of times it's healthcare-related conflict. And sometimes you're mediating between the team and not just between the team and the family. I think the most striking ones and the most troublesome ones are those conflicts that we can't mediate our way through or we do have to ask for outside help to try and get through um, because they're so striking to us and they sit in our memory a lot. We find that we failed in some way, although sometimes that may not be any kind of actual failure, it's just the nature of all the factors that have played into it that meant that there was no way to achieve success if we judge success as coming to a resolution without heavy mediation or um, or further escalation. Some things do still wind up uh, going, having to go through legal channels, and that's really burdensome, I think, to the teams. Um, so one of the things that all of our speakers brought up also and some of our audience brought up today is how are we supporting teams when things do get contentious? Um, having spoken about all that conflict, and I know it strikes our minds, I do spend a good portion of my time reminding people that not all things are the family disagrees with me, and now we're in conflict. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of things are, maybe they do disagree with you, but you don't have to be in conflict. Maybe we haven't actually explained ourselves appropriately. Maybe it's not that they don't understand, but there's some emotional overlay, or uh, moral obligation that they have. So um, it's a little bit like, Uh, When you're interacting with someone who is hearing impaired, screaming louder and louder and saying the same thing is not actually accomplishing anything except making you look ridiculous and being extremely rude to them. Um, And I feel like we have the same behavior when we're like – but how could you not agree with me? Obviously I'm right. So then I'm just going to say it again and now I'm going to say it again and now I'm going to switch the words, but I'm going to say it again. And the whole time they understand. So hammering at it in the same way, isn't going to help. And if you can step back and ask some questions, you may be able to find a different Avenue to actually have a conversation that gets you somewhere. Um, this will not solve every conflict. There's no one single way to solve a conflict. I think all of our speakers sort of recognize that. Um, the other piece of conflict besides the ways that we set things up or the people that we need to get involved to help us with conflict and decision-making is, um, the topic I assigned, uh, poor, uh, Joe Briarley, uh, from Great Ormond Street, who is an ethicist and intensivist. So he could handle the topic quite life, uh, quite well, um, sanctity of life and quality of life. And I think that this is part of where we feel that there's a lot of disagreement. Um, and it's not actually a solvable question. I knew that when I posed it to him. He knew that in having to yeah. face the podium and try and come up with an answer. But even in understanding what those things are and how that uh, can appear in what we're talking about, when we say the best thing to do is to stop, what are we actually saying um, in the sense that death is better than this ongoing non-beneficial therapy that we're providing... Um, that feels a bit different when you're the parent on the other side of the conversation. And we're pretty used to thinking of things in those terms as healthcare providers. But when you pause long enough to see what the other side of the coin is, you may gain some understanding. I'm Not necessarily suggesting that people aren't still making the best recommendation, but rather that having a little understanding of how that recommendation comes across, or when there's certain aspects of that that can't be solved, or how you might have to unpack things to understand where a solution lies, that can be helpful.
0: Definitely. Um, when you talk about doing everything and Mm -hmm. that, how you mentioned that was your soapbox, how do you avoid that? And how do you, um, come up with the right
1: way to talk to the parent about what should be done versus what can be done? I mean, I think that there's not just one answer for that. The first thing I advocate is not to make an assumption by going, okay, yes, we will do everything. And then you walk out of the room and I'm not even sure what the family meant by that, but you have walked out and decided that that means full code. Um, one of the things I spoke to is that's extremely efficient way to go about things. And you're like, well, I talked to them and they want everything. But if you actually find out why do they want everything or what is it that everything means to you, or how is it that you see the course of illness progressing, or what is it that you've been told about this disease process, and you find out all the reasons why they might be saying everything. If you also understand that everything is just a euphemism and your version of everything may not be the same as their version of everything, a whole bunch of times their everything means don't give up on me. Don't abandon us. And don't give up doesn't mean scorched earth policy, grab every device imaginable, it does mean I'm going to invest every, you know, brain cell I have in trying to help navigate this situation, and I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to be dedicated to caring for your child, and that's more of what they usually want, so that you can frame your conversation as, I'll do everything that should be done was done, is a huge portion of the questions a family want to make sure of before we um, proceed with withdrawal of life-sustaining therapy and they're going to still use the words everything. That's okay. It's common language. But if you go, maybe I don't understand what that means. And you're able to say, let me ask you some more questions about what you mean by that. You may not get an answer in that specific session. You may say, let's think about this some more. And why don't we meet again to talk about it further? Or sometimes you're framing things to say, um, what I need you to think about now, or how I would like you to frame this is, or, If you had somebody else making this decision for you, how would you like them to think about that decision? And it just allows people to reframe what you're actually asking them. Um, which a lot of it is what is really important to you, and what are the ways um, in a lot of the literature you'd see, especially coming out of Feudner and October, that group has done a, a lot of work on this, as to the duty of the parent, the, how the parent feels they're fulfilling their duty as a good parent. Um, and trying to understand that can a lot of time frames how they're going to feel like they're op- where their obligations lie for their child.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I think, I feel like a lot of the burden sometimes of of end-of-life discussions and care falls a lot on the attending, but uh, what role do you see for nurses, respiratory therapists, advanced practice providers? How do we become a better team about this and support each other through it rather than the attending making the decision and then... Oh, that's kind of a great
1: point. I mean, that. I think there's a few aspects to that. Sometimes, um, sometimes it's helpful. The nurses are pushing me along to say, like, let's have this big discussion. Sometimes I'm like, I do happen to know that there's a whole bunch of other people in this team that aren't quite there yet, or various aspects. So there's different ways that we already, I do think, interact to try and help push each other to that aspect. The things that I find most helpful are when you can have an actual conversation about that. Sometimes, um, the bedside providers don't have the full information on why it's taking you this long because. Often their their issue is it's taking you too long to come to the big talk. Um, Sometimes it's helpful for them to understand actually what the burden of trying to have that conversation is and the things that you can't undo when you have that conversation. Um, sometimes then when we have that conversation earlier, um, and when they ask me great questions earlier, we can have a bit of a think about it or brainstorm about it together. And they can, they can really be invested in like, let me find out, you know, this aspect of the family, or did you know, Roxanne, that there is a sibling and this happened to them? And I'm like, I had no idea, but that is a super helpful piece of information. Um, probably it involves more communicating together. And I think part of that challenge becomes if I'm trying to organize that across the course of a week of being on service and my bedside nurses are switching out every few days on 12-hour shifts, I'm inevitably going to miss somebody that's important to that part of the conversation. And I'm not sure anybody's quite figured out how to exactly solve the handover piece of the nuanced pieces of information. Um, taking more time to do it would probably be helpful. But again, all of us are pressed for time. So the only other solutions I can kind of come up with on the fly, um, well, not on the fly, that, I, that I've sort of thought of before others have suggested, trying to get some of your potentially nurse practitioners in your unit, some of your nurses in your unit, RTs in your unit. To do additional training courses in palliative care skill sets, meaning a good portion of which are communication. How do you communicate about end of life? How do you take these conversations? How do you talk about what other hopes there are besides just life? Of course, you want a cure. Of course, you want life. Sure. And what other things can we hope for? Learning how to have those conversations and implanting those skill set within the unit, I think actually magnifies the skill sets more than just in that person. So if one nurse practitioner has sort of taken this on and, and has done a little bit of extra training, certificate courses, whatever might be offered or spent extra time with the palliative care team, they then bring back skill sets that then bleed into maybe they're having conversations with their nurse practitioner colleagues who then pick up a few tips along the way or at least are like, let me have this conversation and oh, I'm going to pull in. If it's Jill, I'm going to pull in Jill and and have her chat with you for a little bit. Or Jill has some great information to share with Roxanne, who's the attending this week, um, so that we can rely on each other a little bit more that way. Um, and I know that there's, especially in this session, we came up with a little bit of a contested back and forth between everyone agreeing the palliative care team in and of themselves can be super helpful to consult and they can be having those conversations that maybe aren't appropriate for you to have when it's like, we need to do these urgent therapies. And I also need to give you space to think about what if all those things go wrong. And sometimes I can be that space. And sometimes they don't want to have that conversation with me. Um, so there's a bunch of things that palliative care team can add, but we also all agreed that you couldn't do it in exclusion. So you still need to take it on yourself. Um, And I think take it on yourself doesn't just mean that intensivists have to be uh, exceptional at discussing end-of-life care or taking on palliative care skill sets. I actually do think we have a more obligation than we've currently spent time on in educating our nurses, RTs, allied health providers, um, and nurse practitioners in some of what those skill sets might be in a real like practical way of how they can contribute skill sets. And that won't take away from the consultative process, it might actually enhance it because people are interacting and sort of speaking the same language in a similar way to if you have people who know a lot about cardiology, speaking to cardiologists, wow, that conversation goes a lot faster and easier. Okay. So why don't we have some people who know a lot about palli care, talking to palliative care specialists, and suddenly that conversation is just a little bit smoother and easier. And those things can support each other in the same way for me as having um, an anesthetist intensivist, as well as a pediatric trained prior to intensive care intensivist, they can complement each other in their skill sets, and that actually enhances the unit as a whole. So I think that we should be adding skill sets within, as well as consulting from without.
0: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. Definitely. What is the big takeaway that you would want the listeners to come away f- about end of life care?
1: How do we? Well, I wish I could give them a good bullet point. This is what's going to solve all your problems. Um, I think we gave them what they already knew, which is this is a really difficult space to exist in. I'm hoping they took away some key moments of like, Oh, this is where trouble arises, and these are maybe a few tips on how to help when there's trouble. Perhaps. Um, communicating through things that we just assume is important. And finally, end of life care is actually as intense and involved and important as acute resuscitation. It's different. Definitely. But it's intense and important.
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you again, Roxanne, for speaking with me today about maximizing end-of-life care. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.